There's this beautiful geographical feature on the coast of Oregon called God's Thumb. It looks like God, God saw everything that he created, said that it was good, gave it a thumbs up, and then covered that thumb with dirt and planted grass. It, it genuinely looks like there's this giant hand giving a thumbs up towards the ocean. It juts out over the ocean and has sheer drop-offs on three sides. It truly is a remarkable place, one of the most breathtaking places I've ever been. So I took lots of pictures of it and I documented it thoroughly. But even looking at the good pictures, it's not the same. I can't feel the breeze. I can't hear the waves crashing on the rocks. I can't look over the edge of the steep cliff. I can't sweat as I climb five miles through the Pacific Northwest. And I would even venture to say that if a helicopter dropped me off right at the peak of the thumb, it wouldn't be the same because I wouldn't have the experience of the journey on the way to that grand vista. Today we're trying to stop in our text at a grand vista. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 to 16. It's a beautiful vista. But it's difficult to get the full benefit without doing the full hike. But because I don't want to keep us here all evening, we're only going to stop at the vista. So let's pray before we begin, and then we'll look at the text. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to examine your word. Would you make this a profitable time for us? Help us to be responsible with the text, to understand what it means, and then apply it to our hearts and our lives. Would you give us wisdom as we do this? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Back home at my church in South Carolina, we have a long covered sidewalk that heads from the back parking lot into the lobby of the church. It runs parallel with the full length of the gym. And every Sunday growing up, I would see kids leaving the building after the service and absolutely sprinting down that sidewalk towards the parking lot. But I would also see something else. I would see a panicked parent running after and chasing their child and saying, please do not step foot in the parking lot. Why? Why are they so upset and bothered by this? Well, it's because the parking lot is a dangerous place for people who don't pay attention. The parent calls out to their child to come close, to hold their hand so that they don't fall or get hurt when crossing that dangerous place. Our passage in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 has much of the same type of dynamic. It's showing Jesus as the high priest. And this group of verses serves as the introduction to the author's main purpose in the book, which is to highlight the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we have this incredible, breathtaking view in this passage, and we see that because Jesus is the high priest, you can draw near to God. Because of Jesus, you can be close to God. But that actually makes us ask this question. Why? Why do we need to draw near to God? It's because like the child that is sprinting towards the parking lot, when you don't draw near in times of danger, you can fall. 
when you don't draw near, you can fall. And so the heartbeat of Jesus, the high priest, in this passage is saying, I don't want you to fall. So cling to me. I have what you need. Let's read the text and we'll begin unpacking it here. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to treat this message differently than I normally preach. I'm going to give you the call to action right up here, up front, and it's going to be entirely unhelpful because we're not going to actually know how to do it. But here's the call to action. We find it in verse 14. It says, let us hold fast our confession. I told you it would be unhelpful. What on earth does it mean to hold fast our confession? To answer this question, we need to ask two smaller questions. One, what on earth even is this confession? Well, this idea of confession appears two other times in Hebrews, and it helps us understand what is being taught in chapter 4. The first time it appears is in chapter 3, Hebrews 3, verse 1, where the author writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. And appears later in the book as well. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Here are some takeaways from those two verses. First, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Christ is the central figure of this confession. That's what we find in chapter 3. In chapter 10, we find that the confession builds hope. Where it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And when we begin to put two and two together, that we get this hope through Christ. This confession is your faith in the person and work of Christ. So we could rephrase this call to action. Cling to your faith. Well, Then we have to ask this other question. How on earth do I cling to something that's abstract, like faith or a confession? What does that entail? Well, the fact that it's a command indicates that it takes some determination on our part. Each one, individually, we have this responsibility to do this. We can't let our faith slip. And it also indicates that if we're having to hold on, this faith isn't entirely established. You have this faith, but apparently you can slip. It's not in this final state. Your your faith will be fully fixed in eternity, but until then, you're called to further work in order to establish it, to root it, so that you don't falter. Just like James says, your faith goes hand in hand with your works, confirming one another, helping us to stand. So that's what it means to hold fast to your confession, or to cling to your faith. But that's just the groundwork. Everything else in this passage is going to help us see how we can actually do that. 
What does it look like and how are we able to do it? You have a faith that you must cling to by working to see it developed in your heart and in your life. And we have to know how we can actually do that. So everything in these verses are going to support that idea. This is how you can cling to your faith. So what's the first idea in this passage? It comes in verse 14. You have a great high priest, so you can cling to your faith. Look at what the verse says. It says, Jesus, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the high priest, and he's the Son of God. He, he doesn't have these limitations of a mere man, but he's actually God himself, able to serve as your high priest eternally. Text also says he's passed through the heavens. He's in heaven now, sit, sitting enthroned beside the Father, interceding for you. And unlike all the high priests before him, his work is not limited to earth, but it actually makes inroads into heaven. And this is why the text can say that he is a great high priest or greater high priest, better than everyone before him. There's literally no weakness in the priestly ministry of Jesus. If we flipped over to Hebrews 7, the author would show us all the weaknesses that Jesus counteracts in the priesthood. He doesn't need to make sacrifices for his own sin. He sacrificed himself and that sacrifice worked eternally. His ministry is also eternal because he doesn't die. He knows those who he's ministering to perfectly. And rather, rather than this title being passed down through the line of Aaron, he actually deserved the title. Jesus is your great high priest, greater than any high priest before him. But actually the height of Jesus' greatness is characterized by his sympathy. And this is the second truth we find in the passage. Jesus is a great high priest, so you can cling to your faith. But Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, so you can cling to your faith. This is what the text says, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The text is communicating, Jesus can sympathize with you. Why is that? Well, it's because he took on human nature. Jesus felt hunger and thirst and weariness. In just a few moments, we're going to ask, why is this ability to sympathize so important? But for now, just understand, Jesus has felt the pain, the turmoil, the pressures of life just like you, and he's actually felt them to a greater degree than you as well. Jesus does not only understand the human nature and pressures of normal life, he understands sin and temptation as well. This is what the text says. He was tempted in every way. He faced temptation, so he understands temptation. We have this notion in our society that if we could just get this group of good people and move away from the rest of the world, we could solve all of our problems. But the reality is, Jesus went away, not even with a group, but by himself, and he was still tempted. I think we're going to have problems building this ideal community populated by sinners when the Son of God himself was tempted when he was alone. That's perfect company right there, and he was still facing temptation. 
And for 40 days, while being deprived of his bodily needs, Jesus suffered intense temptation. So of all the people to have walked on this earth, Jesus knows temptation well. But the text also notes Jesus was without sin. So although Jesus faced temptation, Jesus never caved to temptation. And you might think, even as I did just a, a few weeks and months ago, well, I don't know, that's not really a huge encouragement to me that Jesus faced temptation because Jesus couldn't sin. His temptation isn't real when there isn't a possibility to sin. But that's actually not the case. Think about the nature of temptation for a moment. Temptation generally arrives in the form of an innocent thought that we can easily dismiss. And then after we dismiss it, it comes back a second time, often in a not-so-innocent way. And if you dismiss it the second time, it probably will come back even stronger yet again, and then again, and then again, until you finally cave to its pressures. Or, if you continually turn it down even though it's coming back stronger... It will change its face, exert a different pressure, entice a different area of your flesh. And so the more you turn down temptation, the stronger it returns. Now think for a moment with me. Jesus never sinned. He always resisted temptation. And if each time we resist temptation, it comes back stronger the next time. This means Jesus suffers the most intense temptation that any person has ever endured. The pressure from temptation and Satan himself continually ramped up as Jesus went throughout his life. He has suffered the most intense temptations, felt its pressure most powerfully. So don't dismiss his experience because he could not sin. Jesus' sinlessness serves to magnify his ability to sympathize with you rather than diminishing it because he's been tested far more aggressively than you or I have because we cave to the pressures of sin before that temptation grows too strong. Your high priest understands your temptations. He understands them even better than you because he has faced the full force of those temptations. He's able to sympathize. Now we can ask this important question. Why does it matter that Jesus can sympathize? Let me illustrate it this way. A few weeks ago, my Hebrew professor was gone for a few days, and we had a former student come and teach in his absence. This former student took the class that I'm in two years ago. So it was fresh enough in his memory that he knew exactly what I was going through. And there were questions that I had about Hebrew, but I didn't know how to voice them. And this, this student would say, oh, you don't understand this one component over here because you haven't, un you haven't learned this second component over here. Once you learn the second component, the two pieces will come together and there will be a light bulb moment. And guess what? 
when I learned that second piece of information, there was a light bulb moment. It was like the greatest week of Hebrew ever. Why? Because this former student understood my struggles. He could sympathize. And because he could sympathize, he could offer exactly what I needed. This is what we find in verse 16. Because Jesus understands and sympathizes, he can offer exactly what you need. He extends a promise of help that best fits our need. And do you see what's happening here? The author tells us that we have to cling to our faith, but he doesn't tell us how. He says we have this high priest. He's greater than any high priest before him. Beyond that, he can sympathize with you because he understands weakness better than you. And we're left wondering, okay, yes, yes, that's awesome doctrine. How does that help though? And he's building and building and building. And he says, because Jesus has done this greater work than all the other high priests, and because he can sympathize through knowing you better than any other high priest, he can promise you exactly what you need. And so he extends you a promise of grace because he wants you to cling to your faith. That's what you find in verse 16. You have a promise of grace so you can cling to your faith. Now we need to do a little bit of work here. Because verse 16 is often used to communicate biblical truth, but not actually what verse 16 is teaching. When I tutored math students, I would, I would make this terrible pun frequently. I would tell them I didn't want them to be math magicians. I wanted them to be mathematicians. It's not enough to magically get to the right conclusion. You need to do the preliminary work so that you can trace your own steps, so you can see how you made it to that conclusion, and you can lead others to that conclusion as well. So we need to take a little bit of time here as we look at verse 16 to ask a key question so that we can come to a defensible conclusion on what this verse is actually teaching. And, and this is going to be the crucial question. Verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The key question is, what is this time of need? Because as a person with great weaknesses, you have many times of need. And as a Christian with the sin nature, you have many times of need. So where in this great cloud of weakness that verse 15 points to, where do we find our greatest point of weakness, our greatest time of need? Well, keep in mind, this verse follows right on the heels of verse 15. What does Jesus suffer through in verse 15? But was in all points tempted. Your greatest time of need is during temptation. When are you most apt to fall, to quit clinging to your faith? It's when you're tempted. Because here's the reality. You're called to hold fast even during your time of need. Verse 14, when it says to hold fast, doesn't have an exception clause in there. It says cling. It doesn't say cling unless or cling if or cling but it just says cling. 
So even during your greatest time of need, during temptation, you must cling to your faith. But here's a second reality. You can't cling to your faith during your time of need with only your strength. I mean, have you ever tried to cling to your faith with your own strength during temptation? I mean, it doesn't work out so well. You fail. And if you don't fail quickly, then either the temptation comes back stronger and stronger until you do fail, or the temptation morphs into something else. The guys in my family go on a fishing trip each year to a beautiful lake in northern New Brunswick. We fish for three days, just gorgeous scenery. It looks like a meteor came down and smashed out the middle of a mountain, and where that crater is, it just got filled with water. It's gorgeous, and over three days, six or eight of us will catch around 300 fish most of the time. We put two guys in a boat and we say, don't you dare come back until you're so ravenous you can't fish anymore. So we'd get a lot of fishing done in those three days. The only thing in the lake is trout. So we're fishing for trout. And I have a personal rule. I never start out with the same lure as the guy I'm fishing with. If we divide our approach, we find out way more information. Are the fish just not biting at all? Or is there something they prefer over another thing? Now, typically the best lure up there is a muddler. It's a boring brown looking moth. This past summer, I was fishing with Joel at the start of the day and he had on the muddler. Yeah, just like Joel to take the best lure. So you know what I did? I said, fine, if you're, if you're putting on a muddler, I'll put on something else. And wouldn't you know it, Joel starts hauling in the fish. I think he caught four within like three minutes. And he goes, Daniel, if I were you, I'd put on a muddler. I'm like, no, no, no. I'll, I'll wait it out a little bit longer. Then he catches another fish like right away. And he says, if I were you, I'd put on a muddler. And man, I, my fingers are going so fast. I'm like, I'm putting on this muddler as fast as they can, as fast as they can go. But my fingers are so cold from the weather up there. And then he catches another fish. And he wants me to help him get it in the net and then pull it into the boat. So I have to put down my muddler that I'm trying to tie on and grab the net and get the fish out of the water. I mean, Joel's over there like Peter, just hauling the fish in. And so I frantically go back to tying on my muddler and he, he nets another fish and he's wanting me to help him get, get it in the boat. And he goes, Daniel, if I were you, I'd put on a muddler. I'm like, yeah, you get your own fish. I'm putting on this muddler. Why? Why am I switching from something that wasn't working to a muddler? It's because if it's working, it's going to keep coming back. Temptation is the same way. If it's working, it will come back time and time again. But as soon as we start resisting, it either has to intensify itself or it actually has to change the bait. And we can't hold on to our faith in our time of in our time of need, with our own strength. Because the temptation gets more and more powerful and more and more creative. So we need someone else's strength. So the only logical conclusion is, well, God has to supply the strength to hold fast, to cling to our faith. 
And this is really where the beauty of the passage is. Jesus, because he took on human nature and came to earth, he sympathizes. And because he felt the same needs, he can provide for those needs. He can meet them. You can't cling tightly enough during temptation, so he freely offers you grace for the battle. How do you attain this strength to cling on to your faith? How do you get this promise? Well, it's through prayer. What verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We're not being called to transport ourselves into heaven. And Hebrews 10, and 23 has the same idea. It commands us to cling to our faith. And verse 22 says, You can only cling to it by drawing near in prayer. You have to draw near in prayer. And so you cling to your faith by seeking this divine, enabling grace during temptation. And again, this, this passage is just beautiful. You can come boldly into God's presence. Why? Because of the atoning sacrifice of your high priest. Jesus literally paved the way for you to have access to God with his own blood. If you didn't know Jesus, you could not dare to enter the presence of a holy God with confidence. If it weren't for your relationship to Jesus, when you entered the throne room, you wouldn't find radical, overflowing grace. You would find righteous and deserved judgment. You can come boldly to this throne of grace. God's throne is literally characterized as this dispensary of grace. You want grain? Go to the granary. You want milk? Go to the dairy farm. You want water? Go to the spring. You want grace? Go to the throne of God. And what's the result? When you come boldly for this grace to help you in this moment of temptation, what is the result? You actually get it. He gives it to you. When you seek grace, you find abundant enablement to face temptation. Because you can't do it in your own strength. And you need this grace, so God supplies it in abundance. So next time you find yourself in the moment of temptation, you have to remember this promise. I cannot cling to my faith in my own strength. So God offers me grace in my moment of need. And then you pray this way. God, this temptation is a great moment of need, and I can't overcome it through mere self-discipline. I want lasting victory. So would you supply the grace that you promise for those who ask for it? Thank you for this promise of grace. Or if you want it in more concrete terms, when you're tempted to lie and preserve your self-image, ask God to richly supply his grace for you to overcome that temptation. See, what we often do is we try to rationalize our way out of sinning. Okay, I'm lying to protect my self-image. Now, but when I actually lie, a lot of times those lies get exposed and I just look like a complete idiot. And then my self-image gets ruined even more. And so what we're trying to do there is fight sin while still idolizing our self-image. It doesn't work that way. We actually combat this at the root with grace. 
So you ask God to richly supply the grace for you to overcome that temptation. And then you thank Jesus for how he made that abundant grace possible so that you can cling to your faith. You can come boldly to the throne of grace to find that grace. But we also find mercy. When you cease to cling to your faith, In other words, when you fail, when you sin in that moment of temptation, not only do you find grace for the next temptation, you find mercy for your past sin. God doesn't only supply abundant grace for victory, he supplies mercy when you suffer defeat. And it's very possible for you to think that when you confess your sin and seek mercy, you pain Christ. But if you're thinking that way, your thinking is wrong. See, your active sin pains Christ. And your unwillingness to repent pains Christ. But seeking restoration and mercy does not. How do I know this? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This text says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. What joy is there in enduring the cross? The only reasonable explanation for the joy is that Jesus wanted the joy of granting mercy and forgiveness because Jesus delights to show mercy. So when you cave to the pressure of temptation and sin, do not hold back from Christ. Do not think your seeking forgiveness will hurt him. Hebrews 12 tells us that Seeking forgiveness and restoration brings him delight. Refusing to seek restoration hurts him. But coming to forgiveness brings delight. When you need forgiveness and mercy, thank Jesus for his tenderness towards sinners. Ask for forgiveness and then ask for grace for the next temptation so that you can cling to your faith. Whether you need grace to face temptation or mercy because you sinned, Boldly come to the throne of grace because God will grant you exactly what you need to cling to your faith even during temptation. Your high priest is great. He sympathizes and he makes radical grace and mercy available to you because you need it in order to hold on. Jesus offers you exactly what you need so you can cling to your faith. This week, by God's grace, would you consistently approach the throne of grace for the strength to cling to your faith, even during temptation.